0: One of the beautiful things that a lot of people that are anti-gun, for example, have no idea: if people weren't buying guns and people were not buying ammunition, then wildlife would suffer considerably from that.
1: Their blowguns are—I'm going to say—seven to eight foot long. They could shoot a small bird that was forty foot up in the canopy, no problem.
0: Speaking of David and Goliath, David carrying that thing around, using it every day—that dude, as he as he did, could hit somebody between the eyes with that thing. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's an effective little tool. Well, I've got one that I actually keep in the toolbox of my truck. I've been studying some things that are new to me as far as knife defense and knife fighting, and I'm just telling you, it can hurt you in a hurry. This is why fire is so important to you all in survival. It boils water, it cooks food, and you can harden tools with it.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to The Survival Show podcast with Craig and me, David, where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster. And it's our job to show you how to use the lessons you learn today to thrive in your life tomorrow. Craig, my friend, what is up? Life.
0: Life. (laughs) <laughs> it's busy. It's busy at the Coddle Household right now. I've got uh, my university class tonight, Master Naturals training, and then I've got 400 EMTs and paramedics that I'm training tomorrow morning for about six hours. So, oh, that's cool. So when you got that many people that are going to be listening to you, you got to be on. It's going to be on like Donkey Kong, son. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah getting all that stuff together is where i am currently so that's good so yeah. it's good to take a break and hang out with you and get on this podcast for a while guys and gals our mission here is to help you progressively increase your survival iq so you leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you are at the beginning right now today we're going to continue on with some hunting ideas but we're getting into cool stuff we're getting into gear and everything that goes along with it. We're going to be talking about primitive weapons today. We're going to be talking about near-modern, what I call near-modern or hybrid weapons, modern weapons, as well as, as far as weapons are concerned, we're also going to talk about how you can get your kids involved and get them involved safely. So that is the show today. We're going
1: to be talking about all kinds of cool stuff, and glad you've joined us. And Craig, we're going to throw in an extra gear cave section. Hope you got something cool that you've been checking out that you can share with the guys. We'll make sure that we have time for that before we're all done. But before we get into all that, guys, don't forget to go over to TheSurvivalShow.com and check out the three ways you can support this podcast and keep us on the air and going strong. Over at TheSurvivalShow.com, you'll find links to give directly on PayPal. You can join the tribe over at Patreon and get appropriately scaled up rewards and perks. We periodically put new content over there and last week i posted up the entire hunting section from craig's book and i did post a family communication plan over there too also guys number three you can go over to amazon and get tiny guides and you can support our great sponsors like the sportsman's guide thank you thank you thank you
0: yeah man we can't be doing this stuff without these folks that are supporting us financially and can't thank you enough but every week i go and look at the home page of what's on the sportsman's guide see what's cool what's new and uh, one of the things that i've been needing to get that i'm going to get because i saw them on here and i can get them cheap baby is these kayak roof rack carriers nice. it gets old tying and untying my kayaks down so i'm gonna get some of those racks and put them on my wife's truck and that way we can go kayaking a little bit more easily i'm ready to get into it son how about that all right guys and gals so for those of you are tracking along in the tiny survival guide and if you're not we highly recommend that you do we will be expanding greatly on Section K5 in our podcast today, the Tiny Guide serves you as both a training tool as well as a reference tool when and where you need it. But one of the things I want to make sure that we get into first and foremost is just understand the legalities and safety of any weapon that we might be utilizing. Because fishing game laws across the country are very different. And I learned this really, really uh, intently when I went to Alaska and went fishing because their fishing guide in Alaska is about 10 times the size of our hunting guide for the whole state of Kentucky. So you want to make sure that you check in with your fishing game service. Uh, They're called a lot of different names here in Kentucky. They're referred to as the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. What what do you guys call it up there in Pennsylvania, David?
1: It's the Pennsylvania Game Commission that works hand-in-hand with the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Craig.
0: Yeah, natural resources um, is where most of these organizations reside if there is some sort of natural resources department within your state. I know here in Kentucky, and there's been a – I don't want to get into the politics too much, but I think as sportsmen in particular, we need to be aware of the politics that go on in our areas and uh, it's very important, both for our hunting rights as well as the conservation of wildlife. We've had some issues here in the, in Kentucky that are more politically oriented. So again, I don't want to dig into it too much, but everybody needs to know that it div- differs across states, but like here in Kentucky, the Department of Fish and Wildlife is fully funded by hunting and fishing licenses here in the state. And so... Uh, we have a voice in what that gets used for. And I know a lot of people that do not hunt or do not fish, and they still buy hunting and fishing licenses because they want to mm-hmm. support wildlife and conservation. And so that that is very important to understand as far as how those monies work. But one of the things that also comes through that a lot of people don't know about, and I love to promote this as much as I can whenever I'm talking about hunting and stuff of that nature, is the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937. Okay, this act basically there was a there was a tax that was going straight to the Treasury Department of somewhere around 11% on firearms and ammunition back then. And the Pittman-Robertson Act said that that 11% would then get distributed throughout the states and the states have to go through all these different requirements to make sure that they get that money. But it is literally billions and billions of dollars since that time. I mean, billions hmm. and billions of dollars that get pushed out to the different states to be utilized for hunting and, or, well, not necessarily hunting, but for conservation and wildlife protection. And so, you know, again, not to get too political, but if, if people weren't buying guns and people were not buying ammunition, then wildlife would suffer considerably from that. And so that's one of the beautiful things that a lot of people that are anti-gun, for example, have no idea that, uh, conservation of wildlife would be severely affected if people were not buying weapons and and ammunition to go along with them. So that's important, I think. There's a lot mm-hmm. of money there. And uh, moving on into the safety thing, I thought what, what we'd do is go through the firearm
1: safety rules. You want to cover those, Dave? So these are from Jeff Cooper's Four Rules of Firearm Safety. All guns are always loaded. Assume that any gun that you have is loaded you're going to check it, double check it, check it again. Number two, never let the muzzle cover anything you are not willing or purpose to destroy. Now, when we say the word cover, some people would say, sweep. you don't want your muzzle to ever be pointing in any way at anybody else or anything you don't want to destroy. This brings up a question some people may have. When you're in close quarters, let's just even say at a range or something, do you have any tips and suggestions how people can make sure that their muzzle doesn't cover or sweep anybody in close quarters?
0: That's a million-dollar question, really. I've been in a lot of training with some really high-speed dudes, like some of the best of the best and the United States military. Equal amounts of people that say you should always be at the high ready or be at the low ready, and it goes back and forth. And when you're transitioning from high to low and, and you're locked and ready to go, your your firearm does have one in the chamber, which we all should if we're carrying for self-defense, then we've got to be careful on where we transition those firearms. Mm-hmm. And we use trees in the wilderness, and that was a tactic that was taught to us by Rodney Van Zant. Uh, who's been my tactical guru for a number of years now. So everybody has their own way of doing it. It's just, especially with the walls and ceilings and floors and all the things that go along with it in a house, for example, you've got to be really careful because you never know who's on the other side of the wall or who's in that above that ceiling or what have you. So,
1: yeah. So the last two of these four would be keep your finger off the trigger until your sights are on the target and be sure of your target and what is beyond it.
0: Yeah, these four rules of firearm safety can never be spoken enough. I probably post these four rules of firearm safety at least once a month on my social media, at least on Facebook I do, just because you never know when you haven't reached that person that's never heard of them before. It seems like simple stuff to those of us that have been around firearms most of our lives, but if somebody's new is getting involved in hunting or some of that nature, I think it's worthy of putting it out there as often as possible.
1: We're going to be talking about some primitive and modern tools other than firearms also. I didn't want to just pass by what we need to consider as far as safety and handling any bladed or edged tools and weapons. I did a full video on YouTube on this very topic. I think it was 14 keys to knife safety and handling. Do you want to just cherry pick maybe three out of this list? Yeah, I think you're
0: number one here. This is a good list, by the way, everybody. If you haven't, I watched that video, Dave, and that's a really good video. It is uh, very, very direct and and to the point on a lot of different topics, but number one is always treat your knife with respect and a healthy fear. They are dangerous tools. and, And I don't know how else to say it. I've been studying some things that are new to me as far as knife defense and knife fighting. And I'm just telling you that utilizing a knife and being around a knife, you've got to be really careful because it can hurt you in a hurry, in a very big hurry. And so that's something that you just need to, it's not a toy. I think that combines another one of the things that you brought out in your list, but it is definitely not a toy.
1: Next, keep your knife sharp. A sharp knife is a safer knife. Dull knives force you to work harder because it doesn't cut well. If you're a parent, if you're a mentor of scouts,
0: if you're leading other people, then sometimes you have to make the hard decision to tell somebody to put their knife away. And because they're recognizing somebody's gotten dehydrated or they're tired, And they do not need to have a knife in their hand. And I would also like to emphasize again, it sounds crazy to people that are new to edge tools, but David is absolutely correct in that a dull knife is a much more dangerous tool, improperly used, I should say, than, than one that is sharp because a sharp tool does what it's supposed to. Whereas the dull one, you know, you do exactly like David described and you end up cutting yourself by accident so how's that? I think that covers it. Let's make sure we add your video in the description below because this is a good list.
1: All right, man. So why don't we get into talking about some primitive and hybrid weapons? First one, just because I'm going through Master
0: Naturals training and we we had the archaeologist come in and speak to us last week, is atlatls. If you're not familiar with atlatls, it's it's basically a big long spear with a projectile on the end of it that you uh, create a, a throwing tool that is not directly attached, but is holding the spear itself and you fling it and it throws it for a very long distance. Now these were used, um, you know, anywhere between 10,000 years ago up to about 3000 years ago. And the people that did them, the, the people that utilized them, what they discovered or what they think happened, what archaeologists believe happened is that they discovered that the dude over there that's got the longer arms, is the dude that could throw a spear farther, and so what they did is they created this little handle so everybody had a longer arm, and so they're a very effective tool. I've built these things on numerous times. Uh, we we actually taught I, my organization taught a class for the United States military where we taught primitive weapon building. Uh, Doug Meyer assisted that course. Uh, Doug Myers taught a lot of uh, taught a lot of really high speed guys like. Uh, Matt Graham and some other guys that have been on TV and stuff of that nature. So a fantastic weapon right there in that ladle and heck man, they're fun. They are so much fun. And so particularly the military ones that we did, we got big competitions, see who could throw them the farthest and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, those things will go really incredibly far, just pretty cool. Alright, next up is blow guns. Tell me about your experience with blowguns.
1: I think it was 2016. I went with Joe Flowers, who was on the podcast a few podcasts ago. He does a bushcraft global expedition to the Amazon rainforest, and it's really cool. There's an arrangement with a Tribe that still retains their primitive roots uh, from Brazil, and they come up and they lived with us, trained trained us. Their blowguns are I'm gonna say seven to eight foot long. They could shoot a small bird that was forty foot up in the canopy, no problem. Then they helped us make a blowgun. I have one here. It's a much more simplified blowgun that's made out of a palm that's hollowed out and then a mouthpiece, and then it's covered in a basically latex that we boiled down. This whole process, you can see. In my video series, Jungle Bushcraft, I think there's six videos on YouTube, and you can see the whole process of making them, and there's almost a half of a whole episode where I get to go hunting with the Matisse. It's all there. Very effective primary tool. They also do use bows, and they also, they've got small bows for fish hunting. They've got bows that I'm going to say are about six and a half, seven foot long. You can see that bow. I think it's episode six of that series. Have you ever messed with blowguns, Craig?
0: Again, I mentioned Doug Meyer earlier as one of the guys that's trained a bunch of really high-speed uh, primitive technologists. Doug has taught classes for us at Nature Reliance School and taught me personally. Uh, he is probably the world's one of the world's uh, best experts on Cherokee blowguns. Uh, matter of fact, he's got a book that is about to come out. That uh, Creek Stewart helped him publish. Doug is just a phenomenal primitive technologist. So if you ever get a chance to, to work mm-hmm. with Doug Meyer in a class, then check him out wherever you get a chance. I, I know he just got back from Canada on a primitive week where they were up there in Canada living primitively. Everything. Foraging, hunting, hunting. All the tools, all the fire building, everything that they did was primitive. There was no modern things allowed in class whatsoever. He taught us how to build blowguns and make blowgun darts using thistle darts, bull thistle dart nice. as fletching. So those work really well. And I've hunted with that and have used it for success with birds. It's not something I use a lot, but I have done it to make sure that I could do it and uh, works exceptionally well. What's next? Rabbit sticks rabbit sticks are just sticks. You all, they get this cool name rabbit stick, usually about the length of your forearm, maybe a little bit longer. Um, one real famous type of rabbit stick is a boomerang. Cause it is a returnable rabbit stick, basically, uh, for those that are, uh, new to that sort of thing. Boomerangs are cool toys to a lot of people, but they're fantastic hunting weapons. Uh, the way it was taught to me again by, by, uh, Doug, was that there would be two hunters together or there would be two boomerangs that were carried. One was thrown to cast a shadow, which would cause a rabbit to stop, thinking that it was a bird. And the other one was utilized to actually strike a rabbit and kill it
1: by the
0: aboriginal people in Australia. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the things that boomerangs were utilized for. Uh, Rabbit sticks I've used with success for harvesting game. Um, particularly rabbits and birds, same thing. Uh, I've tried to use it with squirrels and not to be mean-spirited or just because I just don't like harming animals if I'm not going to eat them. Uh, I could not take a squirrel with one. Uh, I've hit them, but I just couldn't get them. And so I quit hunting squirrels with them in favor of other tools instead. But uh, one of the things that I've used with pretty good success, and we, we set it up in advanced survival class a couple of weeks ago, was to set up a a net on the other side of a bush so you you get on the edge of a field start pushing small game like birds and stuff across a field and they'll always go and light in a bush as they're leaving and you put a, a net on the other side of the bush so they can't escape and when you get to it you hit them with a rabbit stick and so that's one very primitive way of survival hunting with a
1: with a rabbit stick. Something I want to emphasize while we're on the rabbit stick, Craig, I know when we've done our training up here in Pennsylvania, Craig, we've gone with the simple. It's always good to know what your simplest options are. I did a 40-day training a couple years ago where, where we went through all kinds of survival techniques and skills and challenges and stuff like that. And the first thing that we talked about, learned about, and practiced with was a rabbit stick So all of us, every one of us, when we went out to some of the skills challenges and the knife-only training and all that, we all had a rabbit stick because you just never know. Go with the simple. You can't get any simpler than a rabbit stick or even a rock if you've got a good arm. So you've got this Mastodon Cliffs what do you want to talk about here? <laughs> I was like, I have no idea what he wants to talk about. Here. <laughs> well, this one came up
0: again a couple of weeks ago in my master naturalist training, because we were studying archaeology and how native peoples of uh, here, because this is in Kentucky. So we're looking specifically at those peoples that lived here in, in what we now call Kentucky. And one of the things they did because, um, Back before the glaciers completely receded out of this part of the world, there were mastodons here. And in this part of the world where we call the, the Red River Gorge and, and areas where there's high cliffs and stuff of that nature here in Kentucky, they are confident that some of these peoples would push mastodons and even the precursor to what we call a, an elk larger, they were larger bodied animals that looked similar to an elk. They would push them out these cliffs and just run them off the cliff Mm -hmm. until they fell off Mm -hmm. and, and then go down and harvest the meat from that. They would chase them sometimes throwing atlatls at them and, and other rocks and other, whatever hunting weapons that they might've had, just very primitive means to the point they just shoved them off a cliff. And you talk about primitive, man, that's, that's a primitive way of
1: killing a critter right there. How about that? So mastodon was like an elephant.
0: Yeah, with big old like, with tusks that were you know twelve, fourteen foot long.
1: And I'm guessing that's Did the you... only way you're going to take a mastodon back then.
0: Yeah, they killed them with adalattles, and it's it okay. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They would they would take adalattles, and that was the primary way hmm. that they would take them down. And they would all go after them with their adalattles and continue to throw until they bled the thing to death. And it's just, man, history is an interesting, very interesting thing interesting. too endeavor and to get into i just can't imagine running through a field chasing down a big old elephant basically with a stick (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) with a rock on the end of it yeah i mean you you gotta be one tough dude to want to be able to run down a mastodon or one hungry dude yeah no joke you know they were hungry
1: all right so i've got a couple of other things we've got your basic spear again go with the easy Do not underestimate a spear. Whenever I go out into the woods, I almost always have a six, six and a half foot hardwood stick. It's a spear and it's what I call a thumper. The reason I call it a thumper is I was in a survival training situation where (laughs) there were a lot of snakes and having a walking stick spear with a heavy non-sharpened end makes distance and gives you the ability to whack a snake over the head to stun it if needed. And I have had to do this before. You can always make it a nice survival
0: gig from mm-hmm. a similar piece of material and then keep one, the other end sharp and pointed like a spear. So you've got one of each in one tool. And then if you if you break it or you lose it, then you just make another one. But uh, that's a fantastic little combo there to have one of each. And it's walking stick. You can use it to keep critters off of you. I talk about it in, I think, my second book on having one just to keep animals away from you if some if something's getting aggressive, other than snakes, too. Something is larger than a mountain lion or a bear or something of that nature. Uh, I'm a big fan of firearms, personally, but if you're opposed to them, then you can at least have something to defend yourself with, and uh, that's, a, that's not a bad
1: little idea right there. Do you want to just describe to anybody who doesn't know what a gig is and what the purpose is and how to use it?
0: Well, just think of a gear like a trident, if you will, if you're new to it, but the typical survival gig is one where you take a stick, usually somewhere between uh, something larger than your thumb but smaller than your wrist, and you you go down about 10, 12 inches down and tie it off with some cordage. And the reason you're cutting off because you're getting ready to split it, and you split it into fourths, into quarters. And each one of those quarter pieces you sharpen to a point. And then you take small sticks or something of that nature to spread those out so that the points are not simply stuck together, but they're spread out in a head. And then you can utilize that to gig fish, gig frogs, gig snakes, gig small animals. Uh, I've used them. If I've been trapping and I have an animal stuck in a trap that is not dead, then I'll gig it to the ground so I can dispatch Mm -hmm. it as quickly as possible. And I don't have to get my hand on the animal and get, you know, my fingers chewed off or something of that nature. But,
1: but yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good little tool. One thing with gigs and spears, oftentimes when you make one, you may be taking or need to take a tree that's green. And if you have to do that, the tips on them can wear really, really quick if the tree's still green. So what you can do is you can fire harden your tips on your gig or your spear. Just as Davis described,
0: that greenery is going to break down real easy. So if you have a fire, this is why fire is so important, you all, in survival. It boils water, it cooks food, and you can harden tools with it. But you don't want to get it into the fire with the coals because it'll be consumed and get burnt up and dry out too quickly. So if you rotate it through the fire. Uh, to the flames themselves, and you can fire harden it in such a way that it gets, it'll get like petrified hard Mm -hmm. for those that are not familiar with it, get incredibly hard. And then it doesn't break down when you use it as a gig. Mm -hmm. Like usually we'll make a couple in a class, like a level one survival class here in Kentucky. And then everybody wants to try them and they'll end up breaking them because we ended up just putting them together and then utilizing them to demonstrate. And sometimes we do, or we don't take the time to, to uh, fire harden them, and, the, and they just don't last. But if you fire harden it, man, that's it's a whole different piece of equipment right there. I mean, it lasts a lot longer.
1: And you can do that with arrows, too, if you don't have the capabilities or the knowledge to mm-hmm. make an arrowhead. And the only thing about fire hardening is that it does take patience. So next up, Craig, and I don't know if you remember this, back in the days when we had started the Tiny Survival Guide, one of the survival weapons I had in there was Ebola. Basically, a bola is three to five stones that can be drilled through or wrapped in cloth. And then each can be tied off with about three foot of cordage with a knot on the end. You swing it over your head, sort of like you would a sling, like the David and Goliath sling, and you throw it. And those rocks will spread apart and for that to wrap around the legs of the animal and entangle it. And then you can harvest it. Because of space issues, Craig, I had to take that out. Hmm. I do remember that. Bola is one of those things that
0: I have made one time in my entire life and did it just to make a video on it just as a learning process for me because I had never made one and then we got to throwing them at each other trying to trip each other up. <laughs> I do not recommend that because that hurts, but if you got a bunch of conduct running around making boas, then we're going to throw them at each other. So anyway, it is what it is.
1: Next up, we've got a sling, and this would be the primitive kind. And we're talking about the David and Goliath type of sling and a stone. Apparently, he was able to be extremely accurate with one of those. For me, I have never attained that level. Have you ever used a just a traditional sling in and, and a stone, Craig, with any kind of effectiveness?
0: Yes, and it, it's just like everything. It takes practice, but you would surprise yourself if you ever made one on how quickly you can become effective with those things. We had a class where Doug taught a bunch of primitive skills and nets and slings and blow guns and that laddles and everything. And at the end of it, we had a contest throwing rocks out of these slings to see who could hit accurately. And I'm talking, we had a group of probably 15 people in class that had never done that before that were like squirrel accurate within, I don't know, an hour. I mean, like, Yeah. I mean, I just, I can't imagine somebody like, speaking of David and Goliath, David carrying that thing around using it every day. That dude, as he, as he did, could hit somebody between the eyes with that thing. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an effective little tool. I've got one that I actually keep in the toolbox of my truck for just such a, hey, let's get that thing out and play with it and, and keep our skills up with it. Yeah.
1: Believe it or not. Now, we do have slingshots and sling bows. It's not a primitive tool. So we're kind of venturing, Craig, into more of a modern slingshot can be a really effective tool. And I have and have used, but there are some sling bows out there where you can actually get an arrow to come out of them accurately and at a velocity that you could take small and medium size, even some larger game.
0: Never used a sling bow. Never had one in my hand. Yep. Never had one in my hand.
1: I've got a couple of Chief AJ sling bows. They can go dual purpose as slingshots. They can be configured to very, very effectively shoot an arrow also. So let's talk about bows a little bit.
0: Yeah, bows. I've shot bows my, basically my entire life. And I do not hunt with bows right now because when I, the last bow hunting I did, I was pretty adept at shooting a recurve. And to be able to stay capable at doing that, you need to shoot every day, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. And I just got to the point where I couldn't make the time. And it was not something that I've got the time. I just didn't make it because I choose other tools now. You've got to understand what your skill set is. You've got to get to know the quarry that you're hunting too and so being able to utilize a bow any of any type whether it's a recurve or a modern bow or anything of that nature is going to be uh, something that you're going to have to invest a lot of time and energy into but i i'm a fan of it i learned a lot about being a proper woodsman i highly recommend people do that now to get out and, and learn their ways in the woods
1: yeah traditional bows and primitive bows not only take a very high degree of skill to make and then it takes a very high degree of skill and competency to master shooting them
0: yeah without a doubt the The bow that I use now is I carry a uh, Samick Sage I mean that's what I utilize okay it, yeah. it's it's incredibly effective it it's takedown and it fits very comfortably in any pack that I could possibly put stuff in and so that's what I utilize and and uh, to great effectiveness
1: that was my first takedown bow right now I'm training on our friend Doug's Atmos Longbow. I did a full video review of that. It's fantastic. If you do have the capabilities, you can shoot small game with bows. Now I learned this from our friend Mark. You had mentioned having Mark on at some point, but he taught me a couple of years ago about flu flu arrows. Have you ever used those?
0: I have. I used to pheasant hunt. Okay. uh, Just like Not wild pheasant because we don't have wild pheasant here in Kentucky, but I tried to use one a couple of times for pheasant hunting because you're basically shooting up in the air. These flu flu arrows are basically really large, excessively large fletchings rather than the arrow is pretty much the same exact arrow that you would shoot out of your bow. But there's so much wind resistance, you can shoot it up in the air, and then it goes out at the target rather quickly, but it slows down so uh, from such a short distance that the arrow just kind of falls. And you can pick up your arrows, and there's no danger of shooting it into someone and not seeing where it went, what kind of thing. And I used to do, we used to do some competitive shooting, just backyard competitive shooting. With those things with me and my cousins, because we grew up around one another where we would throw up clay pigeons and shoot those things out of the air all the time, man. That was, you talk about some bragging rights. That's fun. Craig, you want to talk about muzzle loaders? I do. I have a considerable amount of experience with shooting black powder. And when I say black powder, not the, the newly formed black powder, like traditional black powder, shotguns and rifles. And from flint locks to percussion caps and double barrel shotguns. And I used to shoot competitively with it. My dad shot competitively with them. Uh, some of my uncle shot bench guns, which was shooting muzzle loaders out to about 500, 600 yards. So, yeah, my family's got a lot of experience with them and they're a lot of fun. Adds a little bit of the history flair to it. Mm-hmm. My dad builds pouches. I build pouches. Uh, leather working pouches what I mean, that are traditional. Some of them are historically accurate recreations of things that we've seen in museums. And nice. and so, you know, I grew up doing period correct reenacting somewhat, not a lot, but some. And so uh, being around muzzleloading weapons is, is just a great way. And then those that are more modern that don't want to go all full out, and, you know, actually load from the muzzle of the weapon, you can get muzzle-loading cartridge weapons, I mean, black powder cartridge weapons, as well as you can get inline muzzle-loaders these days, which is basically you still load the weapon from the muzzle, but you put the cap on inline, uh, much like you would put a twenty-two shell into a rifle or something of that nature, which mm-hmm. makes it a little bit, They some people feel like it's slightly more accurate, but, you know, I'm pretty daggone deadly with mine, and it's a... It's a percussion cap, and my dad is even deadlier than that with his Flinter. So, that's uh, it is what it is, man. I love shooting those things. And here in Kentucky, and this is another reason to get involved in black powder hunting is because, like, here in Kentucky, we get a season in October that is especially for black powder weapons long before regular rifle season, and it's like that in most states too. So, it's you get a little here. early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, you get a little extra advantage to going out earlier before other people go out. And so learning how and and purchasing yourself a black powder firearm is is a great way to take advantage of extra seasons. Real quick, I'm seeing what they've got on Sportsman's Guide. Yeah, they got a nice 50 caliber black powder muzzleloader on Sportsman's Guide for $296. That's crazy. That's awesome. That here's another 50 caliber for 197 with a scope mount on it. I mean, it's if you want to get in. And here's a shotgun. It's a 12 gauge black powder shotgun. I don't know, man. You can't beat it. You can't beat mm-hmm.
1: that kind of stuff. So we want to talk a little bit about shotguns, rifles, and what else? Survival guns?
0: Because we covered rifles and shotguns a bit last week. Maybe, maybe talk about some of the things that you hunted with them, or, or go over that. But I, I don't think we talked about survival guns last week, did we? We did not. Mm-mm. Okay, so let's let's dig into that because I've got several. I've got a Henry AR7. I've got a Marlon Papoose. I've got the Remington Nylon 66. I have a Ruger ten twenty two. I do not have the takedown, which I think you prefer, right? Ruger. I marked that as David's
1: takedown. favorite, yes.
0: There you go, man. Those Ruger 1022 is just a boss weapon all the way around. Mm-hmm. I have not gotten a takedown yet, which I would love to have one. So anybody that's listening out there, you want to send me one? Just hit <laughs> me up, and I'll uh, I'll give you my address. <laughs> hey, but here's the big surprise out of all this. Okay, so the the Henry AR7 is if you've seen these survival rifles, it's the one. It's a little 22 rifle that everything folds up down into the stock, and it floats, and all this cool stuff. Marlin Papoose usually comes in a little carrying case. The Remington nylon 66 is not a weapon that you hear referred to in a lot of survival circles. And I think it's because it just has a look and feel that it's cheaply made Hmm. because the, the, the stock on it is actually nylon. So it feels real plasticky. I don't know how else to say it. The, the magazines that work with the R- Remington Nylon 66 are plastic. Here's what it also is: it is a tack driving machine, son. Hmm. I have one, and that thing is the most accurate 22 rifle that I have. And it, when it was actually my father-in-law gave it to me. Uh, matter of fact, he gave me the Marlon Papoose too. And I thought this is the biggest piece of junk. I'd ever seen until I shot that thing. And it shoots hmm. better than my Ruger 1022. That, that dude something. is a bad, that's a bad little weapon. I used it for years canoeing because it's all plastic. And I mean, the, the barrel is like some kind of stylized, non-rusting metal. And, you know, I would just literally keep the magazine in my life vest, would paddle down creeks and rivers here in Kentucky. And when I saw a squirrel way down the way, I'd put that magazine in and son, it was on. It was, it was time to eat. So I nice. killed a bunch of squirrels that way out of canoe. Squirrels are not used to people coming by in canoes. So they'll hang out over creeks and stuff and not even give a worry about you. Matter of fact, they'll come down and check you out and you can zap them. I mean, I had busted a bunch of squirrels. Like, and I'm talking in a red canoe with no camouflage on. I mean, they just do not care. Sorry, I got excited about thinking about that. <laughs> you know, I, I am not familiar with the Remington Nylon sixty six, so check it out, man. I'll it's to check it's that the out. cheapest looking gun. People get rid of them because they think they're junk. And I'm not saying every single one of them shoots well, but this one, I'm telling you, man, this this thing is a fantastic little rifle.
1: That's cool. I've covered a lot of survival weapons on Ultimate Survival Tips YouTube, but I did a 7-part series on 22 caliber survival firearms and air rifles and pistols also. I did cover the Ruger 10/22 and the Henry AR7 over in that series. The Ruger 10/22 takedown is really nice because it does it literally has a switch in the center of it and then the barrel portion comes off. So you could put it in a pack, and you could carry it around pretty easy. But I don't want to pass by air rifles. They're accurate. I personally recommend twenty-two caliber ones, break barrel, and they're accurate, they're quiet, they're affordable to shoot. You can pick, I looked on Sportsman's Guide, Craig. They've got some really, really nice ones over there. I personally, just because I've tried a bunch of brands, as far as an affordable brand that works for me, you want to check out a GAMO? Spell that for me. G-A-M-O. Gamo. Oh, that's it. Okay, that's cool. it. But they don't have any kick. They're great to practice. They're viable for hunting, and they're a great place to start if you're new to firearms or you want to get your kids into it. Speaking of kids, Craig. S- s- sorry, sorry.
0: I was. I'm. I'm here looking at Sportsman's Guide again, dude. <laughs> looking at these Gamo <laughs> rifles. Is that the ones that you had at the training? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because those are pretty slick little rifles.
1: They are. You want to get the break barrel ones. That big stroke of a pumping action. Puts a lot of pressure into the air chamber, and that allows you to shoot 22 caliber up to, or maybe even more with some specialty ammo, over a 1,000 feet per second. You want to talk about how to get kids involved and, and all that sort of stuff?
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that we did is, I again, I mentioned earlier that when I trained my kids on how to use firearms, we started with, quote, unquote, toy guns, but I did not allow the use, allow them to be used as toys. We graduated BB guns and then we graduated into the firearms. I've got a really interesting photo of my son on a grouse hunt with me carrying his BB gun. It was the first time that he got to go hunting with me, but he was still new. And I told him, if you carry that weapon properly and handle it the way you're supposed to, then next time we go, you'll carry an actual shotgun. That's great, And so he did exactly that and proved himself. And now he does interesting things with tools as well. But one of the big things that I, I wrote an article and I can't remember who it was for, I think it was self-reliance illustrated several years ago. And they, they uh, gave me the assignment of writing an article on teaching kids how to shoot guns safely. And it was one of my first assignments when I started writing uh, for money and and I interviewed a psychologist on this topic. It was really enlightening to me because he's both a friend of mine and he's a child psychologist. And he's also a, a advocate of gun safety and, and utilizing of firearms. So he's a good friend of mine, great guy. And several of the things that he recommended, I've tried to share as often as I could. And here, here's some of those things. One is that, we, we as humans are naturally, uh, we naturally gravitate towards using tools. And so kids are going to be interested in tools and guns are tools. They can be used right and they can be used wrong. And so one of the ways that you can help kids understand about guns is to allow them and actually encourage them to help you clean the weapons. Because what happens is they get to see the inner workings of it, particularly if you're skilled enough that you can take a gun completely apart, clean up all the little pieces and parts of it and put it back together and show a child how it works. Then some of that natural curiosity that we have built into us is, is fixed for them. They they get a little bit of taste of it and they know how it works. The next thing that was recommended by this psychologist was to actually take something out Like a balloon or maybe even a jug of water where you can shoot something or the child can shoot something and see that destruction happens. And one of the greatest lessons is to have them shoot something with a shotgun that tears it apart like a balloon and then tell them, hey, you need to try to put that back together now. And it's impossible, right? Because it's shredded and it's torn into all kinds of different pieces. And then you can emphasize the lesson that, hey, that's what happens when you shoot somebody. You can't put them back together. It's impossible. And so it's just a really visual way of teaching a child a lesson so that they get that visual imprint in their brain that if I shoot something, I'm destroying it. Uh, I, may, I will not be able to put it back together, unlike what they see in video games where they just shoot and they, you know, lives come back and they earn lives and people just pop back up and they're talking to them and all that kind of stuff. And the third is to make sure that the child understands the the concept of death. What age is that? It's different from different kids, but this child psychologist was recommending at least, at least the age of five or six, minimum before kids are allowed to shoot anything remotely close to a weapon. And the thought there is that up until that point, they really don't have a good concept of what death is, the permanence of it. And therefore, once they've gotten into their life where they've seen somebody they knew at, at school, at church, at the grocery store, or in their family that's died, and they don't see them anymore, then they begin to understand a little bit more about this concept of the permanence of death and and injury. And so, it's it's something that th- those are some of the big recommendations for consideration on getting your kids involved with firearms.
1: It's good stuff, Craig. I think we would be remiss, and I'm going to throw this at you. You didn't know this was coming. There's going to be some people that are listening when we talk about survival firearms that are going to say, what about an AR? Well, Craig, what about an AR?
0: Oh, I'm a big fan. They firearms are tools people and tools are in the hands of somebody that wants to commit an evil act is going to commit an evil act with it. And they can use their car to do that as well. If they don't have a rifle, that's my opinion. And in the hands of someone that's there to defend themselves, particularly against somebody who also has an AR, some variation of it, an AK, or you know, I don't even want to use the word that the news uses. These these are just semi-automatic rifles,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and those those rifles are are what they are. And there's all kinds of different configurations of them. Just because people don't understand what those configurations mean and what they look and what the pieces and parts are, does not mean that it. It uh, invalidates it as a, a right that we have to be able to defend ourselves with them. So that's, that's me. That's how I feel. And I know some people feel differently, but I'm gathering most of our audience is right along with me, and I appreciate that.
1: Two twenty three caliber is a fantastic hunting round for a lot of medium size and even larger game
0: Definitely, without a doubt. I've taken deer down, whitetail deer here in Kentucky with two, two, three, with no problem whatsoever. Zero problem. Mm -hmm. Too big of a round to shoot at a squirrel or something of that nature. But you may, you know, you may do some coyote hunting or you may do some game of that size as well as a whitetail deer. If you're getting into larger animals than that, maybe like the size of an elk or even a moose deer, which are typically larger than a whitetail, you could you could do that. You'd have to put that round right into their eyeball or right into their ear and scramble the brain. Not to try to be gross, but that's a kill shot. And um, th- those are things that you would have to consider. But I, I would more highly recommend that you get a larger round for that. But but David mentioned earlier that he put up the section from my book Ultimate Wilderness Gear over on Patreon, and I've got a table there that lists. Several different firearms recommendations from from different entities ranging from Fish and Wildlife Services to the NRA to any number of organizations that that recommend, hey, get this round for a bear. Or, hey, get this round for a deer or what have you. So that's all there in Patreon for you.
1: And you can get to that Patreon section by going to thesurvivalshow.com. So, Craig, to wrap it up here, let's go through a few action steps. You want to start off and then I'll, we'll go back and forth on a couple of these.
0: Action step number one, everything's about safety when it comes to weapons, you all. Remember those four rules of gun safety that we mentioned earlier from Jeff Cooper. You can Google that, see those anywhere. Uh, look up that video that David put together on knife safety. Those 14 points, that's a, a really good video. Uh, and and it's presented in such a way that it'd be, you could present that same information to your scout troop, to your family. And uh, really, really good information there. That's That's the first thing. I'm all about safety all the time.
1: Next, I want to encourage you guys to go out and do something fun. Go out and make a spear. They're easy to do. You're just going to need a knife for that. Practice hardening the tip. You may mess one up, but hey, you got two sides to a spear, right? So you can burn one tip off, and then you'll know to keep it a little bit (laughs) further away from the fire the second time. And go out and get yourself a stick about the size of your forearm. Set up a target. Could be an empty milk jug or something like that. And throw it at it. So get out. Have some fun. Practice some of the stuff that we've talked about, especially the simple stuff
0: think the next one would be you need to consult with your fish and wildlife resources, whether you're trapping or hunting, and see what the laws are. And those people are always, for the most part, really behind getting new hunters involved. And so they'll be doing everything they can to encourage you and help you do what it is that makes you successful. So they're a really good place to stop off.
1: Next up. For anyone that's interested in getting into firearm, check out 22 caliber break barrel rifle. So that's a great way to start with kids or getting started yourself. They're quiet, accurate, affordable to shoot, great to practice. They have no kick, and they're viable for hunting. Did I say that they're cheap? I mean, the ammo is ridiculously cheap. You can get hundreds of quality rounds for like 10 bucks. Anything else on this, Craig? Dude, I would
0: really like to emphasize the idea of no kick. Because I see so many people that get their kids started and they want to take them out and shoot the big gun because it, ooh, it's, it, it's an exciting thing. And I've seen so many kids get turned off of hunting and shooting sports simply because they got scared. Because it, number one, it hurt because they're just a kid. And number two, it's so loud and it's scary. So teach people, teach these kids how to get accurate and, and safe with something such as a air rifle, like Dave is describing, because it doesn't harm you when you shoot it, but that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. Those are incredibly dangerous tools and you need to use them safely. So yeah, just want to emphasize that no kick. I like that, that you threw that in there.
1: Cool. Well, we promised it, Craig. So we got to do it, even though we're running a little bit long today, let's take a couple of minutes and step into the gear cave and share with our listeners a piece of gear that each of us are excited about. How's that sound? Sounds good.
0: Here it is. The Silky Gomboy. It's kind of like, it's kind of like in the middle of, it's a little bit bigger than the Pocket Boy and smaller Hmm. than that. I can't remember what the big one is now, but the gone boy, just look at the big
1: boy. The big one's the big boy. Yeah.
0: Big boy. Okay. This, this, this little guy is in between those two. The It's in between. Okay. Here's the sizes pocket boy, gone boy, big boy. Gone boy is the one that I recently picked up by recommendation of a friend of mine. He's like, Craig, go ahead and get this thing. It's light enough to carry in the pack. I've been cutting the the craziest bunch of stuff with that thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I keep it on the ATV. I keep it in my pack when I'm rucking. When I, when I say I'm rucking, I ruck and I do wildlife study all the time and I'm constantly cutting trees out of the way and, and stuff of that nature that have fallen across the roads and the trails on these woodlots that I do work on. And I used to just take my little chainsaw. And now I take my little gone boy. I mean, if it's a big old tree, then I'll, I will t- take the chainsaw back, but, little gone boy that's that's been the coolest new piece of gear that i've gotten in a long time and it's not so big that it's heavy and you're concerned about carrying it
1: i like it nice i am a huge fan of silky and i guess this is this is the day to refer people over to (laughs) ultimate survival tips videos but a couple years ago i did a comparison of a bunch of folding pack saws and pocket saws and i I think think there were a couple silkies in there did you really i haven't I, i need to watch that we did some head-to-head competitions, and guess what? Silky won. Did you put the Baco in there? The Baco's in there. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, here's why. Because I've used the Baco for years. I've used the cheap Gerber ones, too. I've never done a side-by-side study of them, but I just could tell that these silkies were like, Dude. I mean, it's like, I mean, was it just no contest when you put this together? I mean, was it just cut through that stuff like butter compared to the Baco?
1: I'm going to let people go check that out, but it was. (laughs) But seriously, you got to see it. There's people that will swear by the Bacos, right? They've been around for a long time. They're a bushcrafter's favorite. And it's a good saw. But when I discovered Silky, it changed my life, man. And they're made in Japan. The thing is, they have a different tooth pattern, but it clears out the channel quicker so that it cuts more efficiently. That's that's my determination anyway. Nice. What about you? You got anything new? I've got something really, really new. So a lot of you guys that have followed along with me here and over at Ultimate Survival Tips, you know I'm a big fan of the anchor battery bricks for portable recharging smaller things like your iPhone in an emergency. But for bigger stuff like home emergencies, vehicle bug out or something, Pretty much the only choice, Craig, that I I can think of and that I have is the goal zero line. They've been around for a while, but there's a newer player in the market that's just come out with some new, pretty serious innovations in the portable power generator space. And the company's called Jackery. I think they kind of started out in that smaller battery brick niche. But this new stuff, Craig, I don't know if you've seen it, but I've got the brand new Explorer 500 plus the 100 watt solar panel. I'm just going to tell you guys, this is like, this thing is like three panels that fold up to a manageable size. I mean, you're not going to stick it in your backpack, but for your home or for a vehicle bug out or, or something like that, it's fantastic but 100 watts is about five times more than what you're going to see in your typical solar panel. Wow! I'm going to say it's about the size of a very small cooler where you would just put a couple of items in. So it's not that big. It's not that heavy, but it's got AC, 12-volt, three USB outputs built in. It's, it's got, of course, the traditional flashlight. The cool thing is when it's fully charged, it'll charge your iPhone about 50 times. <laughs> a smaller refrigerator, it'll run it for about 30 hours. And I've got a little MacBook 12-inch, and it'll charge that over six times. This is a pretty serious piece of technology. But what I'll do is I'll put over at kit.com forward slash ultimate survival tips, Craig, where we've got a bunch of other things that we recommend. I'm going to stick it over there for folks. And I've got a whole kit over there for portable and emergency power. I'll stick it in there.
0: That sounds good. Man, there's been a lot of information this show, David. A lot of stuff. All right, guys and gals, as always, subscribe to the podcast now if you have not done so. It is absolutely 100% free to do that. That way you ensure that you don't miss out on any episodes that we put out. Many thanks to you who are listening who, yes, without a doubt, you're already a subscriber. We can't thank you enough. That support is invaluable. And one more time, I want to say this. Thank you for everybody that has up to this point financially supported us We couldn't do it without you. We really appreciate it. I want to throw out these opportunities for you. Go over to Amazon and buy some tiny guides. Everyone wins. It's great information. You've heard us talking about it. You've heard us sharing information with you. Buy one, buy five, buy 10, buy 20. I don't care how many you buy. Every time you buy, that helps David and I out financially, which gives us an opportunity to put out great podcasts like this. So go over to also survivalshow.com. We've made it very easy to support the podcast with links to, obviously, again, the Tiny Guide. You can donate to us through PayPal. You can support the show on a monthly basis through Patreon. And lastly, please support our sponsors. And I've tried my best throughout the show. Done a little different, you guys. As we talk about things, I I tried to hit up the sportsman's Guide to give you an idea of all the things that are there. So uh, I hope that's helped. And without a doubt, Sportsman's Guide has been good to us in their support of the Survival Show podcast, and we greatly appreciate that. So check them out. You'll find something there that you like. I guarantee it. So we really appreciate you checking out the sponsors and supporting them as well. I think that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Survival Show podcast. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp.